Hello and welcome to InsureTech Insider episode 123. I'm John Bean. In today's episode, we're going to talk about insurance brokers, which is something we haven't done much of lately. We'll be taking a look at what they do and when they're needed, explore some of the ins and outs of the role in the current landscape, and then turn to look at what the future looks like. Will technology erase the need for them or will it simply force them to change and adapt? Join us as we'll take a deep dive into this super interesting topic. As always, I'm not alone, but joined by a panel of an amazing guests. First up, I'm joined by my co-host, Nigel Walsh, Managing Director of Insurance Google. How are you today, Nigel? I'm chipper chirpy, is how I am today. Any reason for that or just chipper chirpy? Just chipper chirpy. It's, a, it's, it's Wednesday, <laughs> it's sunny outside, uh, my family's here. Life is good, actually, and there's some really cool things going on in the world of insurance and Google right now. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'm pretty chipper because this is my final thing for today and then I can go home. Over to you, Mark. We're also joined by Mark Costello, CEO of Hub. Firstly, big congratulations at the Startup Awards winning Startup of the Year category and FinTech Startup. So can you give our listeners a little bit of information about yourself and Hub? Yeah. Hi, John. Um, I'm Mark Costello, as you said, from Hub. Hub is uh, what we call Broking 2.0. So we're, we're using technology to augment how a traditional broker market works, which I've worked in all my life and I uh, think it really needs a good shake-up. So we're using technology to make the, the proposition for the customer much better and the underwriting information from the insurer much better. Which sounds really dry, but, but that's what we do. Well, we can certainly unpick it uh, as we get through the conversation. Let's get started. So we pride ourselves on being an inclusive podcast here that allows people of all backgrounds to tune in and able to digest our conversation. So let's start at the beginning. I'm going to start with you, Mark. Can you give us a brief rundown on what an insurance broker is? Yeah, well, I mean, an insurance broker is a wide and varied subject, really. But but at the heart of it is what it does is it advises customers on, on how and what to buy with regards to the insurance products they need to protect the person or the business. And then it helps steer them through the claims process. That's essentially what a broker does. And when should you when should you use an insurance broker? Well, that's a very, very interesting subject. <laughs> As an insurance broker, and, and I look at the, the smallest purchases that I make in insurance, which is my, my home insurance and my car insurance, and, and I look at that the aggregator sites or whatever they call themselves compare the markets and whatever. And really, I don't think there's any problem buying car insurance or travel insurance in that medium. But I think buying home insurance for your average person, that is full of real danger because some of the products they're offering are shocking to say the least. And, and what these aggregator sites do is they push the one that's got the cheapest price to the top. Well, but, but I don't see what the relevance to that is. They're not pushing to the customer what they really need to buy and giving them strong explanations about what they need to buy. And having been a broker my whole life, there must have been 10 incidents where I've had to get involved in claims for people that I know who have got no insurance background and trying to get what should be rudimentary claims paid. And the, the BMOF insurance companies really don't know how to deal with the public. They just don't. Yeah, it, it's I mean, it's it's something that we're seeing a lot. I mean, price comparison websites we've talked about a lot. And certainly in the personal lines world, they've become, I guess, the de facto distribution channel. I mean, Nigel, do you, do you see, I mean, do you see broking as being 
something that is returning. I mean, I was reading some stats the, the other day with regards to, certainly from COVID-19, that they were saying broker figures were, were dwindling or certainly falling um, over the years as technology came in to replace them in intelligent services. And part of that is down to aggregators, as you, as you mentioned, Mark. But COVID-19, I think, shone a, shone a light on um, the need for that advice um, as people were, were unsure of what they were being covered for and they were finding gaps in their policy or holes in their policies. And actually, it was the first time, and I think in a, in a sort of five-year trend, that there'd been a spike or growth in brokers. What are your take, Nigel? I mean, do, do you think brokers are making a comeback? Um, do you think it's aimed at a particular sector or market or line of business? Well, so I think we've almost got to step back a little bit. And we can't, as ever in insurance, we can't draw a single broad brush across it all. There's commodity products, to Mark's point, that are, there's the T's and C's, that's what you've got. It's relatively straightforward. And I'd argue almost against Mark on this one, that for the, for the large majority of people that fit into standardised products, then price comparison websites do what they say on the tin. They compare price. Not all policies and products are actually equal, even from the same provider, whether it's offered direct or from a PCW. Um, but we should separate out personal lines, small to medium business, commercial lines, and this is all PNC. And then even if you get into high net worth, ultra high net worth, or life and health and others. And I think it goes back to one of my favorite topics that we've talked about a lot in one of the recent podcasts as well is education. So broadly speaking, people don't know or understand why they're buying or what they're buying. The why might often be, hey, it's mandated, can't drive a car without it. And we've all seen the you know, in fact, let me use my, what my most favourite example. We're all sitting there at our house insurance on the comparison website. What type of lock do you have? No idea. Bought the house and it's 100 years old. And maybe the lock's not being changed in that 100 years. Get that question wrong. Do we think that's an opportunity for the insurer to penalise us or withhold a claim if a claim is uh, forthcoming? Or distance and proximity from water or a tree over 100 metres? We're all rubbish at getting that information right or wrong. Um, and I think brokers for me, depending on what you're trying to ensure, absolutely have their place. But I think also the type of people that would go to a broker today on personal versus mid-size versus commercial is also changing. And I think to, to Mark's point, technology is enabling that change and enabling brokers to do their job better going forward as well. I go for hours about this one, actually, so I'll pause for a second. Yeah, so 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 my point on the aggregators and do they have a place? I do think they do, right? I think in car insurance they definitely do in travel insurance, yeah, you know, you, you buy what you buy. But I renewed my own home insurance recently and I went through a compare the market, blah blah blah. And it's it's making covers opt-in that I think if it's up, they should, the, the default position should be opt out with an explanation about what the perils of opting out are. And I don't think that's right. Just just a quick question. I mean, do you think that's poorly designed UI, UX, customer experience kind of, and, and the education on the website? So, I mean, do you think we could get to a place where for those products, you could design it in a way that would give you the same level of service as a broker? Or are you always going to have to go to a, a broker for that additional, I guess, insight and that sort of tailored, personalised risk management? Okay, so, so that's an interesting point. And kind of 
without rabbit on about my own business, which I do 24-7. That's kind of what we are doing, right? We're taking out all the, the mechanical bits that a broker does and trying to automate all of that. And then we're using AI to build that, that experience of risk management insight and then creating trapdoors for when the tech can't do it, it then passes to a person. So that is exactly, you know, a big part of what Hub is. Do I think, but I mean, you know, I've got to ask the question is, do the aggregators do it because it's pad UX? I don't think they do. I think they just want to get the sale done, right? Because they're under so much pressure on their paper click or whatever it is they do with the aggregator sites to get deals done, that they just design it to come in at the lowest price point. And most people will just click through and go... But, but, no, but Mark, to your point, they're not cover comparison sites, they're price comparison websites. So they're optimising for things... You, you're, you're uncovering a bigger issue here. The, the bigger issue we're uncovering is people don't know what they're buying. They want the lowest price possible for whatever gets them past the next stage to allow them to drive, get the property, get the mortgage, get the finance, whatever it might be. Nigel, we, you and I were on a podcast previously talking about compliance, right? And, and I said, we don't need more compliance or more regulation. We need better regulation. And I, and I think that what people need to get into their head is insurance isn't a product, right? It's a risk instrument. It's an instrument you buy to mitigate risk. And should we be allowing people to sell insurance on a price basis without covering just the basics of if you don't take accidental damage to your building and this happens, you ain't going to be covered. And just giving it a, a, a brief example, you know, because it could just be that you go and get a drill, you go through something, you've not taken accidental damage in your buildings, you cause a massive problem and you've got a five grand bill that you can't fund. And if you had paid £12 extra a year in your insurance premium, you'd have been covered for that. Should we be insisting that they tilt how they sell those products? I'm not saying that price doesn't come into it, because it does. Price comes into everything in life. But given people are more educated, like you said you were discussing in your last podcast, way of conducting how they buy insurance makes sense to me. I think it's, I mean, it's a much bigger, I think it starts to, to delve into a much bigger challenge, which is the industry, certainly within Personalised, the industry, I, I think, has got almost a brand and identity challenge, which is you look for the cheapest because you don't understand the value that can be driven or derived and you don't really understand that value unless something bad happens so you for years and years and years can can get no value back from the insurance company if there isn't any risk mitigation services and i think there's a really sort of almost an image problem and an education problem where we've got to turn it on its head and flip it to say well what is the to your point what is the value of insurance that goes beyond just protecting the things that that you love how can i actually do the risk management and and to not your point, Nigel, that, that is not baked into a price comparison website. It's not a product comparison. But if you compare it to another industry and compare it to wealth, so when I sit down with my financial advisor and look at investments going forward, he asks me about my risk appetite. Mm. So they ask me to match my risk appetite as to where I want to put my money from a risk perspective into future investments. But when I sit down to buy insurance, I'm not asked about my risk appetite, whether I can self-insure or not. I've just said, here's the list of products. We assume you know what you're talking about. So maybe if we had a digital appetite before we got to price comparison, we'd pre-fill the criteria based on what we expect and our risk appetite. 
or our level of affordability, like we do on a mortgage or whatever else, to say, can you cover a five grand bill to Mark's point, or would you, you know, maybe this is the, maybe this is the deductible or, or excess question, you know, uh, do you want to pay two hundred fifty quid, five hundred quid, or five grand, and that might then change the level of cover that you've got that you provide on the price comparison website. You know, what? I, I I love that. I can't believe nobody does it. <laughs> or if they do, I, I don't understand why they don't. I mean, because that's effectively what you do, Mark. I guess as a broker, is yeah, is is ask those type of questions. Well, well, well. It's funny you say that. That is part of of how we we operate, and something that we are looking to build into our tech stack. You know, we've only been going eighteen months. We've been trading, so so that's something that we are looking at. And in actual fact, a lot of the old fashioned instruments and insurance that have been lost like the franchise, are, are really powerful tools for business owners. But you speak to your typical SME underwriter at one of the big insurers, they don't even know what a franchise is anymore because they've tried to squeeze everything into commercial combined package policies that, that miss quite a lot, actually. They were supposed to be all-encompassing, but they actually miss quite a lot of opportunities for the customer, to Nigel's point, to decide what their risk perception is and what they want to do. There's a lot of at the type of customers we deal with, um, you know, a three, four thousand pounds loss, they're going to say, well, what does it look like and how much is it disrupting my business? And am I actually going to claim for that or am I just going to get it sorted and just move on? Uh, and a lot of them will just say, well, I'll just get it sorted and move on. But the, the products that have always been there in the past don't seem to be there at the moment, which is partly why part of our journey is building MGAs to, to, to provide the products that we think people want. Yeah, and I, and, I, and I find that a real shame, you know, I find that in a real shame in insurance where people make those decisions as in, we'll cover it and we'll just move on because the value or the the value exchange of insurance is in that claims process where they come to help you. And people choose to ignore it or take that completely out because either they perceive it's painful or they perceive that they'll be dinged for it or penalised in the future. Yeah. And therefore, they they never understand the true value of insurance because they they just moves away from them, which I, I find it such a shame. And I think there's got to be something more where people feel that they can use their insurance for the purpose of why they bought it without feeling you know penalised. Agreed. Just to, moving on, quick one. What, what do you think are the downsides? I mean, I, I was looking in terms of the downsides of a broker, and I don't know if this is still true, and maybe you've you've removed this, but you know, you look at kind of what the the supply chain is in the industry, and they always talk about it being a really long supply chain, you know, customer to broker to wholesale broker to carrier to reinsurer to retro. You know, do, do we think broker, you know, this is a too long supply chain? Um, and that's one of the downsides of using a broker is this in incredibly long sort of handoff point, which makes it or has the potential to make it very uh, inefficient. I think that there is a lot of truth on that, that there's inefficiencies in the market. And then you start looking at the, the if you look at the 100% of the premium and you start chopping it up into the component parts of where that money is filtered, I think a lot of that's true. So when I started broken, which was quite a while ago, um, MGA stroke binder type brokers done really specialist stuff, right? Stuff that you couldn't get anywhere else. But there's a lot of MGAs out there now just doing bog standard package business. And you've got to ask, what value are they driving into the market other than that they control a distribution chain at some point? Uh, what what real value is that delivering? Um, you, you look at somebody like Flock, who are an MGA looking to, to become a full stack insurer. 
they are driving value into the market for the broker, for the customer, for everybody in the chain. Fine, that works. How are they adding value to the market? Well, they're providing risk management features for the customer. So they're helping the customer mitigate their loss and they're helping the insurer reduce their cost, the, the, the cost of claim. Um, that, that is a very simplistic... So deep, deeper insight. Yeah, deeper insight. Yeah, I, I was speaking to... Anton was on the show last week, yeah, and he was saying, you know, that they charge the premium and depending on if the customer does certain risk mitigation, then they can lower their premium. Uh, so at renewal, yeah. obviously, it lowers. So you're right, they're, they're providing that kind of risk management, risk advisory service. Yeah, they are. In, in return for a value exchange or a price reduction. Yeah, but coming back to the point about wastage in the value chain, where I see that most is the consolidation that's happened in the market and brokers earning commission that are completely at skew with of what value they, they provide to the chain. You know, brokers getting 40% on commercial combined package business because they print the docs off and it's no more than that. And that is, to me, is is wrong. It must be one of the only industries in the world where you could be earning those kind of um, figures basically to cover the inefficiencies in the process rather than the value delivered. Yeah, absolutely. But then you're then you're in that instance, you're almost making a better case for where the product is standardised and it's relatively commodity then push it to a digital self-service or price comparison or otherwise to save 40 points on cost. So what you're better doing is pushing it to a broker like Hub who take a much smaller fee and not commission, and by and large it's a fee, and, and we will push that digitization through the process, eliminating most of it, allowing the customer to self-service, but open that trap door and fall into it, I need advice as and when they need it, as opposed to paying 40 points at the front end just in case you need it. And, and what happens at those big consolidators is that people are told you can't move business to insurers where we don't get optimum commission. That happens. So you're looking at it almost as a hybrid model, aren't you? Which is where, where you can self-serve, self-serve, where you need that advice, then almost, what is it, pay-as-you-go type advice then? Pay-as-you-go advice as and when you need it, placement fee for the marketing exercise, and then where we think that um, the market can't provide the products that, that we think our clients need, we'll build our own binder stroke MGA products and give them that. No, I, I love it. And, you know, I'm seeing this more and more. If you look at, for example, Nigel, you touched on wealth management earlier. If you look at, I mean, Hargreaves Lansdowne, for example, they used to charge a fee. They're starting to do, you know, that one-off transaction fee advice rather than taking the two, three, four percent per year when you might you might not use them at all or you might use them once. Actually, let's give a much lower fee or a flat fee and then we'll just charge you for the advice as you use it. And I, and I think we're going to see more and more of this model as, because otherwise people will always question, well, what value am I getting? Well, let, let me let me play devil's advocate a little bit because I go back to the life insurance space and I go back month, multiple years when commission on the life insurance was embedded into the overall policy. Along comes RDR and we give transparency to the end user to say what you're actually paying commission to the to the customer. Customer goes, oh, I'm not paying for that advice. I'm not getting anything from it. And they stop. Net result of that, you end up with workplace pension because there's a massive pension gap uh, arising. Workplace pension then says, um, everyone with more than, I think it was uh, two employees had to have a 
minimum contribution for all their employees going forward. So whilst we try and create transparency on one side, either telling you what you're paying commission embedded or direct, that then distracts or detracts some people from going, I'm getting no value from it, why am I paying it? They then stop and then we've got to fix it with more regulation to get you back into that mix. So it's a, it's almost a double-edged sword. I'm not sure there's a, a straightforward answer here. It's almost back to Mark's point. It's almost the, the ability to digitally engage and interact where you can and want to and where you need help or we think help is best given to you, we have the opportunity to interact, nudge or engage you accordingly. And that's, I think, the issue we had with brokers. There's a question here around um, independent agents as well. But I think that's where we had the issue with people just taking money and you've only ever seen them once a year when they come back for the renewal. Yeah. Well, what, what we are working on now and we're in beta stage is embedding our risk management software into the customer. So we'll embed it into their accountancy platform, Zero. QuickBooks, whatever one they use. And then we can measure their turnover, their wage roll, their headcount, CapEx events inside their business. And what that allows us to do, what you come back to your point, Nigel, about that being proactively reaching out to the customer, that allows us, A, to then start building MGAs or working with our panel of insurers so that we're underwriting in real time, but we can actually mitigate the customer's risk and be monitoring the risk all the time and allowing them to relax. And on the flip of that, another risk management feature will build into that is we will credit score all of their suppliers or all of their customers and giving them that real insight to their business that they don't have time to do. You know, I, I run my business and I, I don't have time to think about anything else. Our customers are the same, right? They don't have time to think about anything else. But if, but if you know, as opposed to just sending them a Christmas card, if we're actually reaching out to them and saying, we've seen that you've spent X amount of cash here that looks unusual, do we need to think about your insurance? That's a lot better than showing up once a year with a clipboard and saying, tell me your name again. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you entirely there. I mean, I, there's an app called Snoop in the UK that you, you'll be familiar with, a, a fintech that's great, and it monitors my accounts through open banking and it pops up and says, Nigel, I see you've booked a, a flight. Do you want insurance for that? And I love that. Yeah. But they, they, they don't see I've bought, don't tell my wife, a new device from Apple. <laughs> Would you like insurance for that? And there's an opportunity to be more intelligent um, with that sort of stuff, I think, going forward, where we can start to build portfolios. And lots of companies have done this. It's almost a help me understand my risk portfolio better than I do, number one. And number two, engage more often than you you currently did or you or you, or you used to. Yeah, well, well I mean, I, I've worked as a broker all my life and looking back to, well, when I was in my early 20s and going into my early 30s and I had actually more interaction with customers. You know, we'd have customers who maybe had an engineering business and they'd phone you up and say, we bought a half a million pounds piece of machinery, we need to get it covered. And you're saying, when did you buy it? And they're like, seven months ago right and and that that type of risk is what we are trying to mitigate because insurance might not be top of mind as far as cost is concerned to some commercial customers although to a lot it is they always have that worry that they haven't got their program right and by being completely transparent and sucking that information out of their business without having to bother them every five minutes and giving them insights, we give them comfort that they've got the right cover in place. 
I, I always love when you walk into the Willis Towers Watson office in London, as an example, on the wall that talks about we provide data-driven insights and solutions in the area of people, risk and capital that make your organization more, more resilient. And that's exactly it. It's We've seen people go from collecting premiums and renewals into true risk advisors and specialists in, and this is why we should probably split the show into personal brokerage versus mid-market versus complex commercial, because the three are so broad and so different that there's a space for them all in, in each each individual part. But I think the, the shift from each one is also quite interesting. Yeah, so I don't think our solution is ready at the moment to deal with the types of people that Willis and, and Marsh and Eon deal with. You know, we're not going to start insuring British Airways or huge complex companies like that. But what I think we do do is we take technology and give mid-market customers, people spending between five and a hundred grand a year on insurance, and we give them those insights that the bigger businesses can afford to buy that advisory service from Martian Eon. Yeah, no, and I think it's fantastic. And I can't wait to hear more, but we will do that in the second half of the show as we look to the future. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, Nigel, I'm very impressed that you remembered that from going into the Willis Towers Watson building. Uh, <laughs> well, yes. well said, you must have been in there a few times. It's a great building, that's why. It is some building. We're going to go in and we will be back very shortly. Here at 11FS, we believe in explaining FS without the BS. That's why we created our 11FS Explore series. Weekly videos that break down a complicated financial services topic into something everyone can get their head around. Such as... on rampy Buy now, pay later. The cost of living. ESG. Stable points. Telematics insurance. And inclusive design. Search 11FS Explores on YouTube now. Welcome back. Let's get on with the show. So, Mark, I guess as we've covered kind of the whole spectrum of 300 years of history and maybe more in the last 20 minutes, let's use the next 15 to look at what the future might hold. So crystal balls at the ready, chaps. One question I get asked all the time and I've seen asked time and time again, I actually remember the very first InsureTech Connect with Brian Depereau on stage being asked, do we need insurance brokers? I think he was the CEO of AIG at the time. The same happened a couple of years later with Greg Case being on stage uh, of Aon. <clears throat> Do we need insurance brokers? Um, I guess to you, uh, Mark, how necessary are brokers to a business? I mean, you can talk about this for hours, I'm sure. Yeah, I've done well, yes. But in the mid-market, what the consolidators are offering their customers, I'd say it's pretty poor. Um, and that's just my honest opinion. And I guess to, to, as, as a building that, given that you've spent your career here, are they a dying breed? Um, so you, we talked earlier about the uptick in brokers and, and what you get is that cyclical thing, right? You get acquisition, acquisition, acquisition. Nothing like we're seeing now, right? The acquisitions happening now are insane, right? And I, I think I've seen the, the top guy at Howden saying multiples don't matter. Well... I hope when I put my house on the market, someone has that attitude when they come to buy it. Um, but, but, so, but what you've now got is some startups. But being honest and not trying to make it sound like, you know, I'm Jesus Christ or anything, nobody seems to be doing it the way we are doing it, which, which I think, well, obviously I think this, because I wouldn't be doing it if I was, I think what we are doing becomes more the norm in 10 to 20 years than a consolidated model where 
it's just about scraping out as much income for your own business as possible. Do you think that's been driven? I mean, it's your point, Nigel, you know, are they a dying breed? I, I was always sort of reminded that, you know, brokers feared feared technology or feared change from a self-interest point of view because they felt they were going to be disintermediated. You know, we already talked about price comparison. And do you think in your model, you know, brokers do fear that. I mean, they own the customer relationships. They're in a quite a unique position with many customers, certainly the, the top end. But that fear of disintermediation maybe means they didn't move as fast as possible. Now, all of a sudden, as we get more intelligence, more technology, they've got to react and they can carve... They can carve a space out in this marketplace, which is like what you're doing. I mean, do you think others will start to follow suit or do you think they will carve their own business models or stick to what they know? Um, I don't know. That's it's a good question. So, so I'll give you an, my, what I, how I view technology in the industry. We bought DFP, we've already chatted about off offline. Um, DFP, when, when we get the chance to buy that um, through EOS, Sam Evans at EOS. Ed, my co-founder, went and had a look at the tech. And Ulrich Zink, who's the CTO, or was the CTO at DFP and has now became our CTO, he said to me, why is nobody buying this technology? And I thought, well, I'm really happy that nobody's been buying this technology, right? Because they're just not interested. You can't be running a business where you're getting 40% commission do stuff with tech that makes you 75, 80% more efficient and then do your FCA returns and still be scraping 40% commission out of it. You just can't do it. Unless you, cha unless you change your model. Well, yeah, but, but if you've got a lot of debt to service for acquisitions where you've paid 21 times EBITDA for, how do you do that? And just for everyone else's benefit, DFP to Mark's comment is digital fine printing in short tech that was uh, around many, many, many moons ago. It's interesting your comment about consolidators as well, though, because I think... If I look at the market and the top 10 brokers globally, and you look to some of the big consolidators, the Browns and Browns of the world, GRP just got picked up again a couple of years after uh, after uh, formation, and they've just announced what their 100th acquisition. How, how does that consolidated market work? Are they literally just going out and buying small hubs, no point intended, and then- Anything and everything that breathes. So they're going after volume? Yes, there's just volume. Um, the, the so I've been involved in a few of those transactions. The due diligence is next to nothing in a lot of cases. They buy them, they, they, they push them into a system. All they go is, which insurers are you with? And they go, well, we get that amount more commission from that insurer, so we'll just push it into the sausage machine. We'll generate more revenue. That covers the acquisition. But a lot of this is down to, um, in my opinion, is the weak pound, right? So it's a lot of American uh, private equity money that's funding all of this, and they just think, well, even if we lose 10% on it or whatever, once we spin it back to dollars, we've made a profit anyway. And and, and it's just, uh, it, you know, when 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 the, the world collapsed after um, the, the credit crunch, you would have thought, because at that point, Towergate and Giles were essentially zombie businesses, right, couldn't service the debt they were in, you would have thought that all, the whole world would have went, right, let's think about what this model looks like. But it's actually accelerated um, the, the acquisition and the multiples have accelerated on what's paid for those businesses. Um, I don't get the model. I, I, I think somebody somewhere smarter than me is making money out of it, but 
I don't get it for the customer at all. Maybe that's the crux of it. Uh, for the customer, there isn't the benefit, but for the businesses yeah. and the shareholders, that there's a huge benefit. Yeah, well, if you've got, as I say, if you've got a huge consolidated broker when they've got, I mean, Towergate used to have what they called zones, um, so you could only place business in zones, even though you're telling people it's an open market exercise. That, that can't be right. I, I, I don't know what the FCA is viewing it as. That can't be right. The insurance market is large and wide and varied. There is multiple sources to for a broker to place business. When you're telling people you can only place it here or here because of commission deals, and there's no other reason, then to my mind, you're not a broker. You're a highly paid tied agent. Well, I was going to say, there's a difference between a broker and a tied agent. If you go back to the old IFA days, then you had yeah. you had your region, you had your patch, you had the places where you can place it. Um, but you're a tied or non-tied agent. I mean, the whole IFA, the I stands for independent. These are not independent brokers now. They are parts of groups that be, that have capacity deals with large carriers to place business in, in certain areas. Absolutely. And they've also got deals in place where they've got certain insurers or they're trying to get certain insurers. And I've, I've, been, I've heard those discussions where they're saying to an insurer, if we place X amount of this type of business with you, we, want, we don't want you to quote against us when it's that type of business that's currently ours. I mean, that, that's just completely wrong. So you, you talked about digital fine print as an acquisition. Are there, are there any others that you, without giving the game away, that you think would add significant value to Hub today as you look to grow going forward? Or I think the insure tech space is full of absolutely phenomenal tech vendors, absolutely brilliant tech vendors. And there's one in particular, to your point, that yes, I'd love to get and, and I, I feel sorry for some of these tech vendors because they just can't get the incumbent market to buy their products because they're just not interested, like, like DFP. Yeah, and I presume that's because they don't have, you know, the history or we're going to put a huge amount of business, will you still be here in five, ten years' time? Is it that risk that stops them doing it? It's just the risk of the unknown and that longevity? Because I agree, I think there's some phenomenal tech players out there, modern yeah, tech players. I don't think that is the, what the problem is. I just think that, that I mean, I, I think what happens, right, and, and like on all big, huge organisations, that, that there is legacy tech issues that stop you integrating and all that stuff, and I get that. Um, but I'm not a tech person, right, so I don't know how difficult that actually is, or is that something of a bit of a urban myth we've built up to tell ourselves to stop people actually challenging themselves to move on? But a lot of the times, those tech vendors, and Ed Halsey, um, who's my co-founder, used to sell tech into insurance companies. And partly why I got him on board with Hub was he was just done trying to sell tech solutions to people that don't want them. But you also get that self-protectionism, right? If the CTO or the person that's the tech vendor's contacting the insurance companies going, that's going to kill 30% of my team. I'm not going to buy that. I think that, that comes into the play as well. Is there a better natural home then for some of these insure techs? And we've seen it recently, if you look at things like Trove, that got acquired by travellers. Is, is there a better natural home in your experience or your opinion for some of these techs to be in the broker community or in the carrier community? Yeah, I was, I was actually speaking to Scott from Trove last week and, and we had this discussion. I, I, I think that the monoline insure at the monoline tech solution players should almost do what brokers done in the 90s and create a network where they actually work as a collective if they're struggling to get scaled, right? Because I think that having 
Because what happens, in my opinion, and I might be wrong about this, but with tech vendors, is that they build amazing products and then they put a tech guy in front of somebody to sell them it. And they really need sales professionals, right? Because I think that, again, sales is overlooked as being a profession by and large. And I think putting a proper salesperson who's got a suite of offerings that they can give to these insurance companies, that might be a solution. No, that, that's fair. I, I think, I, and again, I think the other thing to your point is the current economic climate as we've seen with many of the VCs investors, is going to cause or challenge lots of the, the runways. And of course, in an industry such as insurance, we have much longer runway and capability to outlast and, and run through some of these things than many of the insure techs do. So I, I think your point on broken consolidation will still happen because it's a good market for it, number one. And number two, the insure tech consolidation and change will continue to happen too over time. So there's, there's certainly some interesting things in, the, in that space. So where, so where do we go from here in terms of changing the future through brokers? Uh, in, in terms of pace of change, I guess is what I'm asking. I don't doubt for a minute that brokers will exist forever. And I think there's for, they, they have a place. What and where that is, I think is going to evolve or needs to evolve over time, specifically with the risks that you're buying in the industry that you're in. But what's your take on this? Where, where do you see it over the next 12, 24, 36 months? Or if we really want to go mad on the crystal ball, three, five, and 10 years? Yeah, 12, 24, 36 months, I think there'll still be loads of guys in stripy suits stood in Leadnell Market drinking pints, right? Um, I've been one of those guys and I love Leadnell Market and I love a pint, right? But I'm just saying, I don't think that things will change very rapidly. If we're looking at five, 10, 15 years, I, I think that, that there is the technology to, to start treating insurance of what it is. It's, it's an instrument to mitigate risk. And I think we can start having sophisticated conversations. The likes of the, the brilliant people at Willis, Neon and Marsh who deal with the huge corporate customers, we can give that a watered down service of that down into the, the mid market where we play that five to 100 grand a year premium um, and I think that I think that what you will start seeing is self-insurance through through collective groups, whether that's in a captive model or not, because I think the captive model might come under a bit of pressure because offshore banking's coming under a bit of pressure. Uh, but it's always define define what you mean for our listeners. What you mean by captive model? So what and and I've done captives before in the past. What you do is or what you can do is you create a cell of Let's just say it's barbers, right? And they say, right, we've got all of these suite of risks. What we're going to do is take away the least risky bits, put money into a captive, so that's a self-insured captive, to protect ourselves against those risks and then create peer pressure around making sure that people behave better to get rid of those risks and not be taking money out of the captive. And then stuff like employer's liability and fire, you can then ensure that where you take none of the risk so that you're creating a, a blended um, risk tool to protect your organisation. But do you, and do you see, I mean, because it's, it's an interesting, because that, that way you're effectively managing risk better across your portfolio, rather than, I mean, what you see currently today is lots of brokers picking up single lines. I mean, do you see that as the, we talk about the future, you know, do brokers look at portfolio risk management and start looking, I know for you from an SME perspective, you're already doing that, but the larger ones, 
Is, is that where it's heading, where they can use that real-time data? They can give the risk advice. They can advise, you know, whether you're going down a captive or uh, or you go through with a different um, capital provider. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, so, so I also think in that, going back to your point, I don't really understand blockchain. I'm not going to say I do. But I do think that there is way of, and, and you know, we're already starting to be able to report on stuff. I think there is ways of selling parcels of risk out with of the traditional market. Um, now, again, I'm not a compliance expert, but you can see how it can be done. And if you can see how something can be done, then there must be a way of doing that. And I think that there will be a, 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 that this intermediation isn't the right word. But I do think you'll start seeing um, people underwriting risk that aren't traditionally BMOTH insurance companies. I think that's. I think that'll come when once it comes. I think it'll come very quickly. And, and that's where you could see a broker pay, playing that role. Which yes, you know, for the small end, you could use yeah, you could use technology. You could use you know intelligent services to drive that automatically or. With a broker armed with that additional information, additional data, that's that starts to become a role a broker could fill, which is is the moves into the real advisory space as opposed to your point about it, it's it's a transactional business like printing a doc. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And and you, and you say that on on the day that B three I announced bankruptcy, mm. so the, the 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 blockchain consortium that was set up for the industry, and I posted something online about the same thing. So. Let, let me finish on this one, and I'm going back to reputation and education. Do so it sounds like you're saying brokers have a reputation issue that we have to solve mainly around commission and value that you get back, perhaps, which is being solved by folks like yourself through digital self-service and, and some new things. What about an education perspective? And I always go back to, as listeners will know, my two kids, nine and 13, how do we educate them that they need to go to a middle, I was about to say middleman, I'm not sure we have to say that anymore, middle intermediary person, a middle person to buy insurance and understand risk in a better way? How do we get that message out? Because at the moment, my first point would be, dare I say, jumping onto Google or other search engines exist out there, asking what I need, and then being pointed to a site. Okay. So, so I'll, go, I'll do the reputation and education piece. I don't think brokers just have a bad reputation because of cost and, and commission. I, think, I, th I actually think a lot of the customers we speak to don't even believe until we actually get them. We, we, we furnish some of them with a letter they send to their broker for full disclosure of commission, and they don't believe it till they see it with their own eyes, right? But it's not just that that gives brokers a bad name. Um, PFK Littlejohn done a future of insurance paper, what, 2017-ish? Basically, people don't trust brokers. And at that point, they didn't trust the broker, but they trusted the product. Well, the pandemic wiped out that piece as well, right? So what what I think is that, um, that brokers spend far too much time doing menial tasks of shuffling bits of paper about that they aren't focused on what it is they're there to do, which is to offer advice and risk. And I think that that, that that lack of preparedness when they're speaking to people, because they spent so much time doing menial tasks that should all be automated, that probably helps drive that as well. On the education piece, Nigel, it's I've got a four-year-old, right? And you, it makes you think about your own education, right? Um, 
We didn't get taught at school about banks or taking a bank account or what the risk of an overdraft was. So you start university on day one and before you know it, six weeks later, you've got nine grand in debt because you're completely naive and you want to have a good time, right? Um, probably I think that, that uh, taking the risk of life and educating people, I mean, we're getting bloody, uh, <laughs> we're, 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 we're going off piste here, right? But I think under teaching kids about understanding finance and insurance is part of finance. It just is. And that should be something that's taught. I couldn't agree more. And, and I think it, it goes back to what we were discussing at the beginning of the show with regards to, you know, aggregators and price comparison websites. And, you know, what are people comparing? Are they just looking for the cheapest thing or are they looking for the right thing? And I, I think that, you know, you said about lack of education in brokers. I think it's across the whole industry. Um, and, and I know, Nigel, you kind of, you you repeat this constantly, but I do think there is, and I said it at the start, you know, there is definitely a perception or an image challenge that somehow we've got to flip the dial on the value of broking, the value of insuring. And it goes back to that argument that we said about, you know, when that value comes in terms of making a claim, don't feel scared about making the claim. I don't feel you're going to be screwed over because th that's where the value lives. So, you know, that whole education piece around that value and getting to that mo that that point, that moment of truth, um, yeah, we, we need to change the image, flip the door. Well, one of the, one of the things we've done to try and help with that um, building trust with the customer is we don't have a back office. The customer can see everything we do and say about them to them and with the insurers so they can actually see the back and forth uh, if they choose to, they can go in and they can see an email from us to Allianz just for pulling an insurer's name out of heart. Um, they can see that what the response coming back and they actually get to understand the work that goes on in the background if they choose to have a look. And I think that taking, you know, I think the insurance industry's definitely got that Wizard of Oz thing about it, right? And pulling the curtain back on it. A, can help the customer understand what the workload is of a broker and B, let them understand it better. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. And look, to, to finish up, I guess with someone like Ed on the team as well, who's one of my favourite, dare I say, Ricky Gervais of the industry. He's <laughs> rock star, rock star character, rock star heart and great at creating content that matters in today's environment. So... I think you've got a, a, a truly great shot at it going forward. So with that, John, we could talk about this for hours, but John, I'll hand back to you. Yeah, thank you, Nigel. I, I couldn't agree more. And uh, yeah, you, huge congratulations, Mark. I'm, I'm pretty excited about what you guys are going to do next. And to be honest, as the industry as a whole, because I do think it's, it's definitely got a place and it'd be exciting to see where it goes. That wraps up today's discussion. Thank you all so much for joining me. Uh, where can people find out more about you and your companies? Starting with you, Mark. Um, so the the website is www.hubinsure.com. If you're on LinkedIn and you've not seen us, I've no idea what you're doing on LinkedIn because it's a constant and that's down to Ed, who is a rock star and who is brilliant at pushing out our content and, and creating that engagement industry-wise and customer-wise is fantastic at it. And that's, and that's a hub with a double B. And I must say, there is some good content. I watched you guys in the metaverse and it was a lot of fun. Nigel, over to you. Where can we find out about more about you? As always, you'll find me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Nigel Walsh. And finally, you can find me, uh, John Bean, on LinkedIn as well or here at 11FS. 
So thank you ever, ever so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make it better and helps others find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or InsureTech Insider or you can find us at Twitter at InsTechInsiders or email podcast at 11FS.com. From all of us, thanks ever so much and goodbye.